Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Before we start, let's just pray together, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you again, as we do each week, and we come before you because we believe in you. You are God, and Jesus, you have called us to yourself, and we believe that you are the one true God. You've invited us into relationship with you and to walk with you just as you had planned it at the very beginning with Adam and Eve to be in fellowship with you. You have called us back to be in fellowship with you, not alone on this earth, but talking with you and living for you. to be your images upon this earth, your holy and good images of love and of justice, of truth, of mercy, sacrificial love. Lord, you've called us to be that. And so we gather here knowing that you've called us to yourself, you've forgiven us, and you've given us new life. And so I pray now that even as we've worshiped and as uh, we'll continue to sing and as we meet other brothers, brothers and sisters, that, Lord, you would encourage our souls. You would encourage us. You would remind us that you are with us. You would move us forward. Thank you, Father. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you were to um, come to our house and, and stay with us for like a week uh, or more, you, you would realize that we really don't watch TV at our house. Um, we're just not a TV watching family. It's actually something that uh, we just didn't want to do or, or just did not do. And we did have it for about six months when we first moved to Temple City. And uh, we had, I think it was Charter. And I watched so much TV that we just stopped. I mean, there are so many shows out there, right? And now on the internet, there's like Netflix originals, there's Amazon Prime stories. There are so many series out there that you can listen to and watch. And, um, and, and, the, and the thing that's really kind of difficult is that these series, they're really well written. They're good. You know, it's not like I've, I've watched a lot. I might have watched an episode or a few. Um, I like uh, a Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Any Marvel of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Yes, I see your hand. Okay, uh, amen. Like, I like that show. My girls are kind of like, that's a dorky show, Dad. Right? <laughs> I like the humor. I like the dorky humor. Right? Um, I like the story. I like the loyalty that's there. I, I, I just see a lot of good themes in there that I enjoy. But anyway... Um, back in 2012, uh, my friend told me about this one series. 2012, that's six years ago. Some of you guys are going, oh my gosh, how does he remember this? The only reason why I remember is I wrote it down, okay? Uh, but back in 2012, there was a character in a, a series that's actually still going, and this character was a professed Christian, and her name was April. And he told me about this character, and it intrigued me, and so... I went to go watch these uh, episodes, it's, it's mainly two episodes, because I'm always interested to see how media portrays people of faith, right? 
I mean, what are they like and what do they believe? Okay. Now, media is incredibly powerful, by the way. Right? Uh, y y they present characters who now, with the writing, are, are so uh, complex, you know, and they present a storyline that's very intriguing. But every single one of these uh, storylines, there, there's a problem that they face, and usually the problem is a moral problem. It's a decision they must make. And then they make that decision and there's a conclusion. And all I have to say is that media, because of this, is communicating to us values. It's communicating truth in what you believe. And so what you take in is so important. It's so valuable. So anyway, my friend's talking to me about this one series and this Christian character named April and that she was a press, press question. And so I watched it and, and this character is a neurotic personality. Okay, she's nervous, she's unstable, and I guess she's professed that she's a Christian in previous episodes, but in this episode I'm watching, she's in a bar, and she's sitting there, and I really, I, I don't know the full background of the story, because I'm just kind of jumping in on this episode, and she's talking, but this guy's being a real jerk to her, and she just loses it finally. She just kind of goes, what are you talking about? Gets all mad, and she punches him, you know? Just, cold cocks him and then he, he's on the ground and she's like ah, 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 ah. and then she goes home with her guy friend and they're sitting there and she's pumped she's so excited because she's finally broken out of this this confining life she's lived and she's pumped and so when she's alone with her guy friend she's so excited she she considers now compromising her sexual value system, what she's believed all these years. And her boyfriend, or her guy friend, it's not a boyfriend in the episode, looks at her and she goes, are you sure you want to do that? And this is what she says. She responds this way. Yes. Because my whole life I had this idea of what life was supposed to be, these rules I was supposed to follow, but I'm not a kid. I'm not the same person I was when I started my residency. I just punched a guy, and it felt really good, right? And when something feels really, really good, can it be wrong? Or it can't be wrong, right? Well, the episode ends after... Um, uh, you know, uh, the storyline keeps on going and then it ends. And at the very end, she's a little disillusioned. They show her just sitting there a little disillusioned. But check this out. It's not because of what she did the night before. She's disillusioned with why she lived the way she did before. Well, why did I live that way? I'm missing out on life. And as I, you know, as I listened to this character and I was thinking about how the screenwriter was gonna unfold her life, I just wondered how many people, how many people specifically who grow up in church feel this way? How many people feel, right, that their life in the church is more confining and restrictive 
that it has been just a set of rules and commandments that I'm supposed to follow because that's just how it's supposed to be. You don't do this, don't do that. You can't do this. And as they get older, they begin to ask, well, why not? Why can't I go out and do this? Why can't I dress that way? Why can't I see this? Why can't I read this? Why can't I have a boyfriend until college, right? Well, it's all restrictions, and so it's confining. And rather than seeing Jesus as someone who lifts you up, he's actually someone who holds you back. He burdens you. He burdens you from being able to punch a guy, right? Yes, and just be free. And when I listen to this, uh, when I watch this episode, I just, again, I just began to think of so many people and began to wonder how many people think this way. How many people perceive their faith in Christ in this way that's confining and restrictive? And it was totally disheartening. And the reason why it's so disheartening, because that's the exact opposite of the truth that Christ is speaking to us and that many of you in this room have come to know is the exact opposite. It is not Christ who burdens you. It is not Jesus who holds you back. What it is is what this Bible calls sin. It is sin. And today, I just want to look at the passage. We're going to look at the passage. We're going to see what is sin. Some of you are already kind of like, all right, kind of know where this message is going. Wait. Let's just read his words, see what he says about sin and why it is that which holds us back, okay? So we're going to go. We're going to look at John chapter 8. So let's turn to your Bibles in John chapter 8. All right. John chapter 8. I'm just going to give you um, just a brief review of where we're at before Jesus starts to speak, uh, before we start to cover Jesus' words. In John chapter 8, verse 31, I'm going to give you just a little bit of uh, where we're at. Well, where we're at is we're in the temple of Jerusalem, uh, in Jerusalem, the temple, and Jesus is teaching there again. And he's teaching, people are listening, and so the people at the temple are religious people. There are people who are seeking God, who are worshiping him, all right? And so he is in this context and he's teaching them and Jesus has just said some pretty radical things. Here's a few of them. Verse 12, he goes there and this is some of the things that he says. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'm the light of the world. That's pretty radical, right? If we had a guest speaker come into our church and they're teaching and he's talking and then all of a sudden he looks you in the eye. I am the light of the world. Everyone is in darkness. Follow me and you're gonna have the light of life. You'd be sitting there going, where's Pastor Rocky? We need help. <laughs> That's kind of a radical saying. Not kind of, that is. The other things he says, 
As he says this, he goes, I'm going away and you will seek me. These are the, he's talking to the people. And he goes, and you're gonna die in your sins and where I am come, going, you cannot come. He says this again, just, uh, just what I've been telling you from the beginning, I have much to say to you. He goes, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. You're gonna die in your sins. And so he's saying very radical, extreme things, but at, the, at verse 30, this is what John writes. John writes this, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many believed in him. He's saying, I am the light of the world. He's saying extreme things. And that he even says that you're gonna die in your sins and you're gonna seek me, you're not gonna find me. And it says that people believed in him. And that's where we pick up these next words in John chapter 8, verse 31. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, how does Jesus only speak to those who, believed, who, who were believing in him? All I can imagine is that he finishes teaching, and after he finishes teaching, there's still some that are around that are showing interest, and so they come to him. And that's the only thing I could think, because I don't know how he talks only to those who believed in him. So if he finished teaching, and then he just goes, okay, now only for those who believed in me, I wanna to talk to you. I believe they must have shown some interest, and that's why John writes this. So those who showed interest, who, who began to believe in him, uh, John writes, he speaks to them, and this is what he says. He says, right, if you abide in my words. Now abide, it can also be translated remain, and if you read John chapter 15 and look at what Jesus means when he says, you must abide in me, I'm the vine, you are the branches, that word abide means to obey, to trust in, to love him, okay? So if you trust in and obey my words, you are truly my disciples. Now why does Jesus kind of challenge their faith? It says they believed in him. Well, they showed interest, and the reason why now he speaks directly to them is because Jesus is seeking authentic faith. He wants your belief to be sound. He wants to know, you to know why you believe, because he wants to give you abundant life. And so he tells them, specifically those who showed interest, if you trust me, then you are, then you, if you trust and obey my words, you're truly my disciples. And when you obey, he says, and these are key, he says you're gonna know the truth, and then the truth is gonna set you free. Now those who are listening to him respond defensively to this, all right? And they respond this way. They say, they answer him, well, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. All right. How is it that you say we will become free? We're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. 
Now, when you read this, they're probably not saying that they've never been enslaved, like the Jews have never been enslaved to another nation. Right? That's probably not what they're saying, he's, they're, they're saying, because that could easily be refuted, right? Jesus could say, you've never been enslaved? Well, we were enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt, and that's why Moses was saying, let my people go, right? Uh, we were enslaved to the Assyrians when they took the northern kingdom, and we were enslaved to Babylon, and right now we're in servitude to the empire of Rome. So he's probably, they're probably not saying that. Why are they responding this way? I believe it's just a defensive response to what Jesus has just said. His words are cryptic, but let's read them again. It says, Jesus said, if you abide in me, if you trust and obey what I'm teaching you, you're gonna know the truth, and the truth is gonna set you free. What's the implication of his words? What's Jesus implying? He's implying that they don't know the truth, right? That's what his words are implying. You don't know the truth. If you follow me, if you obey me, then you're truly my followers. You're gonna know the truth, and then the truth's gonna set you free. And they're like, what? We don't know the truth? We're descendants of Abraham. We're the ones whom God gave the Torah. We have his law, right? We know the truth, and so their response is more of a defensive response. It's more like, hey, we're descendants of Abraham, we have the truth, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How do you say that, that we need truth to become free? And so they're defensive. But then Jesus clarifies, and he says this. He starts off with, truly, truly, I say to you. Now in the Gospel of John, this expression, truly, truly, is repeated 25 times. And in the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he doesn't, uh, they don't record Jesus saying truly, truly, but he does say truly, I say to you. And then he communicates an important truth. This is just an expression that Jesus, is, Jesus uses and his disciples are used to hearing it. And when he begins to say, truly, truly, I say to you, he's gonna say something really important. And I just think that's kind of neat that even Jesus had this way of expressing himself that was uh, familiar to the disciples, right? Like we, listen, we have listened to Pastor Corey for years and we listened to Pastor Rocky and there's ways in which they express themselves, little things they might say that they're gonna emphasize a point now. And that's exactly what's happening here when John says truly, he records Jesus saying truly, truly I say to you, this is the time when Jesus is saying, listen up. This is ultimately super duper important. He wouldn't say it like that, but he'd say, this is important. This is solemn truth. Listen, and this is what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What is so important that he's saying here? What's the truth he's 
emphasizing. He's simply emphasizing this deep truth that everyone who sins, the emphasis is on everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Who does that include? Everyone, right? Descendants of Abraham or the Greeks or the Romans, everyone. And this is what he's communicating. He's saying everyone is a slave to sin and he's letting them know that everyone is in the same boat. But what does it mean? My first question, what does it mean to be a slave to sin? What does it mean? Well, when you look in the Bible and you read, uh, and you just read and you continue to study, you begin to see that sin, okay, is not only the manifestation of action, thoughts, and desires. That's not what, I mean, that's sinful action, thoughts, and desires, but that's not this concept of sin that God is communicating, right? There is lying, that's an action. There's coveting, a desire, infidelity. There's lust of the heart, of the mind, and of the heart. Again, that's all that, but that's not fully sin. The sin that you see God communicating through the scriptures is much deeper than that. When he talks about sin, he's talking about a power within that actually produces the thoughts, the desires, and the actions. He's talking about a condition, a sinful condition of the heart. All right? And a lot of times, again, we think of sin external to us. When you read, again, read Romans, uh, actually all of Romans, but specifically 6, 7, and 8, it is a condition of the heart, and this is what it means to be a slave to sin. To be a slave to sin is to be subjugated to a power or force within you, all right, that sets its will and desires directly against the will and desires of your creator. To be a slave to sin is to be subjugated to a power, an influence that sets its will and desire against the very will and desire of God. That is what sin is. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying that all, everyone, is a slave to sin. It is this presence in us that essentially does the exact opposite of what God would have us do. And so if in a situation, if the right thing to do is to show mercy, there's a part in us that's saying punish. And if there is in this situation a time that no, you know what, it's actually the right thing to punish, sin would take the exact opposite and it'd be like, no, let him go. Have you guys watched Lord of the Rings, Gollum, right? That Gollum, ever seen that scene? And if you haven't seen it, and those of you who are queasy at really like, you know, scary kind of things, you might not want to watch it. But uh, he's battling this, this scene of, you know, <laughs> Smeagol, who's the nice one? And then there's Gollum, and he's just fighting this internal battle, and the Gollum is the sin, it's a great depiction. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote that whole series, was a solid believer in Christ. 
But that is what sin is. It sets itself in exact opposition of what a good and loving Father would want for us. And that is what we are enslaved to. In Genesis chapter four, right after the fall of Adam and Eve, not right after, uh, many years later because they have kids, uh, we see sin first depicted in this way, all right? And in Genesis chapter four, what happens is that Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, all right, they come and they present an offering to God. And so even after the fall, there's still some relationship with God. There's some acknowledgement that, yeah, he's creator, and they're still worshiping him. They bring an offering, and what happens is that Abel brings his offering, and God receives it. Cain brings his offering, and God does not receive it. And it says that Cain is angry. And this is what Genesis chapter four says, that the Lord said to Cain, right, again, there's still communication with, with the people, right? The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? It was, it was written on him. He's not happy, I don't know, and he's like, <laughs> he's not happy. But this is what the Lord says to him. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you just do what I've asked you to do now and you offer this, this offering, will you not be accepted? But listen, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you. It's against you, but you must rule over it. Now in the NIV, he puts it this way. It's written this, interpreted this way. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must master it. Okay. The image that's given is that sin is this wild beast. It's ready to pounce on Cain and to move him against God's will and desire for him. And God says, you must rule that. But unlike his parents, Adam and Eve, this rebel power is not outside of Cain. It's not a serpent in the garden. This rebel power, this rebel tendency is within. As it is within now all of humanity. And so does Cain overcome it? The answer is no, he does not. And as you begin to read through Genesis and you begin to read the whole salvation, the story of God throughout the Bible, you will see that from this time on, no one overcomes sin. No one overcomes the power within that moves you against the very will and desires of a loving and good God. What you see is you see mankind just moving down, down, and God intervenes. He graciously intervenes, and he brings his people back to him. He calls Abraham, and he says, through you, I'm going to bring a blessing. But even through those people, you see this continual moving away from God. You see that they cannot abide in his words. They cannot remain in his words. Why? Because there is now a power, an influence 
that will move them against it. So each time God saves them, they come back and they go, thank you, thank you. And a few years later, no thank you. And they move away. They continually stray, like that irritating sharp chopping cart, you know, you'll pick up at Ralph's and push and it has one wheel and it keeps on going to the right, you know. <laughs> it strays. That's what he says. He says, all have sinned. That's our condition. And everyone is in the same boat. And it doesn't matter if you've grown up in the Christian church your whole life or whether you've grown up in a completely other religion. Everyone is a slave to sin, a tendency within us that will move us from the one true God. It doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or poor. It doesn't matter whether you're educated or uneducated, a philosopher or a fool. It doesn't matter where you grew up. Again, if you're a girl in Thailand, in the hills of Thailand, or whether you're a girl in the suburbans of Thousand Oaks, it doesn't matter. We're enslaved to this tendency that moves us away from the very one who created us. I think we experience this most when uh, uh, we're with other people and good things happen to other people that maybe we don't necessarily like. And the reason why we usually feel this tendency is because sin, God is love, right? He wants the very best for people. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's justice, just too, but he will move to that which is the best for people. And sometimes when we see things that are happening for the best of people, what creeps in our heart is not, yes, I'm so happy for that person, but it's jealousy. That is the sin within. It, it sets itself in direct opposition of God. And so what is our hope? Right? What is our hope? I'm sorry, you know, I'm the one controlling this uh, slide and so as I'm talking and you wonder, why does that guy keep the slide up there? It's not the guy, it's me. I just keep it up there though, because I, I forget, all right? I just want to clear the guys in the back. So anyway, what is our hope? What is our hope in our condition? Our hope, we sing about it every Sunday. We cling to it every communion. Our hope is this, we sang it again at, during offertory. Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Long, for so long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. When I was enslaved in a dungeon, when I kept on doing the very thing I did not want to do, when I stuck in this pattern of anxiety and of jealousy, of lust, whatever it is, but I know I don't want to do it, but I keep on doing it. I'm in this dungeon. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. You looked toward me. I awoke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and I followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be? that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Beloved, our hope is in the Son. 
who can and longs for us to be set free from the sin within. This tendency that will move against him. Now, there's so much more to say about this, you know. I mean, how does the Lord begin to free us? What's it like? What's that process like? Or what, what do I do with a persistent desire that is not in line with my Savior's will? I know it's not, but it's persistent. What do I do with that? Again, there's so much more to talk about, but, but for now, just know this, all right? That Jesus, our Savior, our God, the one we worship, he knows the condition of our hearts. He totally knows it. He knows the sin within. And so he's not shocked, right, at your apathy toward him. That doesn't shock him. You know, maybe you attended a years ago the perspectives class, and it moved your heart for the lost. And you're like, man, I know what I'm here for. But now, you haven't done anything. You know, he's not shocked at that kind of apathy. He's not disillusioned over a lack of love for friends or a lack of generosity. He's not shaking his head in disgust when you lose your temper and you scream at your kids. And maybe you do that repeatedly. He's not turning his head in disappointment when again you fall into a paralyzing state of anxiety or of depression. He's not surprised because he knows you. And my point is not that he doesn't care about these things. That's not my point. My point is simply this, that he knows you. He knows us. He knows the sin within. And so if you are struggling with the thought, why do I feel that way toward a friend? Or why am I angry? Or why do I continually battle with this thought or desire? He knows why. Because within is a force, a tendency that's going to move against him. And he is inviting us to come to him to be set free. And he knows it. You don't need to be ashamed about it. There's nothing to hide from him. Amen? There's nothing to hide from him. And yet we do. And I can understand why we do, because maybe you've encountered people who are shocked or maybe who have shamed you. But that's not the Lord. He knows. He completely knows the heart. And my point is that he still invites you to come to him, to believe in him, to be forgiven of him, and to remain abiding in his word, to remain in fellowship with him. Because when we do, he says that you're going to come to know me. You're going to know the truth. And in a miraculous way, I'm going to set you free from that. I'm going to set you free. And it's going to be a freedom that one day, maybe you want, if it's like me, you're going to be walking around and all of a sudden you're going to go, oh my gosh. I don't think that way anymore. 
what have you done? And your hands are going to go up, maybe in the mall, (laughs) and you're going to say, thank you, Lord. You're setting me free. That's the freedom he's calling us to. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's come before the Lord in prayer before we close our closing song. Lord Jesus, we come before you now. Just as we are, and you know everything about us. There's no thought, there's no feeling, there's no desire that you do not know. And that shocks you. And so I pray, Lord, that you might begin a work in our hearts to free us and to recognize, to, to assure us, too, of your great, great love, to allow us to be able to look at these things, not to be blind to them, not to pretend that we don't feel certain things or think certain things, but to be completely ready, Lord, before you to confess, to admit, to be able to receive a forgiveness and a freedom that you have come to bring. So Lord, we thank you and we worship you now. In your name we pray, amen.